0: Now, as Sherry said, City Church exists so all people can believe and thrive in Christ. So no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter how far away you may feel, no matter what you've done, this is a safe community. We invite you to explore our faith in Jesus Christ. And we do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe that when he was on the earth, he performed powerful, supernatural miracles to prove that's who he is. And then Jesus rose from the dead to prove he could give us eternal life ultimately and an abundant life here and now. And so that's why we as a church, we exist to help you believe and thrive in Christ. And there's something I want you to know about City Church. We are a messy church and we are messy intentionally. So let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you grew up in the church. I grew up in the church, and I'm grateful my parents raised me in the church. Uh, I trusted Christ because of my church. When I strayed from my faith later on, I came back to Christ because of my church. Uh, When when I was praying about, like, what to do with my life, I was going to be an architect originally, but I prayed, and I prayed, and I sensed God's calling to become a pastor because of my church. And then I met this super hot chick at church uh, 34 years ago. And I, man, I I met her and I married her because of my church. Yay, church, right? (laughs) Uh, But I grew up in a neat church. And this is what I mean by neat. A neat church is where everything looks nice and everything seems fine when it's really not. And so my neat church gathered in a neat sanctuary. And when we went to our neat church in our neat sanctuary, we wore our neat clothes. We called them wearing your Sunday best. And so that meant every year, my mom bought me neat church clothes. And they were neat church clothes because I didn't wear them anywhere else but church. And so one particular outfit stands stands out in my memory. So I was a teenager at the time, and I was a teenager during the 1970s, and let me tell you, man, in the 70s, we wore some cool stuff. <laughs> and so uh, one year, my mom bought me a rust orange suit. Yeah, baby, orange. And my rust orange uh, suit had white stitching along the collar and the edges. Oh, yeah. It had big white buttons down the front. hmm. I had a white belt with three tongues on it, baby, let me tell you. And then I had white platform shoes. I look like a student from the University of Texas threw up on me or something. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing churches where people like to dress up. There's nothing wrong with wearing neat clothes to church. But now looking back, I think when we put on our neat clothes and showed up at our neat sanctuary, it masked the messiness of our lives. We would put on our neat clothes, we would show up at a neat sanctuary, we would sing some neat songs, put on a neat smile, listen to a neat, but oftentimes long and boring sermon, and then we would go back home to our messiness. And it was like at church we couldn't get real about the messiness. So no matter what we were struggling with, no matter what what kind of pain we felt, no matter what was going on in our lives, no matter how messy it was, or at least that it felt when we were in church, we had to put on the smile and act like everything was neat because that's what you did at church. Church was a place for neat people to keep their neat lives neat. And so people felt compelled to mask their messiness. And that's so sad because that's not the movement Jesus started. When Jesus started his movement called that he called the church, he intended it to be a messy movement for messy people with messy lives so they could experience messy grace and get hope for a new life. But you know what? I'm concerned that some of our friends who don't get church and don't go to church don't view the church that way. Now recently, David Kinnaman wrote a book entitled "UnChristian," It's based on a three-year study by the Barna Research Group. And they surveyed people who self-described themselves as unchristian ages 18 through 30, which by the way, uh, in the five mile radius around city church, that's the, lo- the largest segment of adults in our population. And so Kenneman described these unchristians as outsiders because they said that's how Christians and the church made them feel. And he wrote that The church and Christianity had a serious perception problem with these outsiders. 50% of outsiders viewed Christianity and church in a negative way. And three perceptions stood out. 91% of outsiders view Christians as anti-everything. Known for what they're against, not what they're for. 87% of outsiders view Christians as judgmental. Meaning they condemn people for their faults. And 85% of outsiders view Christians as hypocritical, meaning they say one thing, but they live their life in a different way. One outsider summed up their perception of Christians this way. Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, angry, violent, illogical empire builders who generally cannot live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. Too many times outsiders have experienced Christians with antagonism. They've sensed our our opposition. Like it's almost like like we view them as enemies, or they're the opponents. And they view the church as expressing condemnation for their lifestyle. And frankly, can you blame them? I mean, honestly, I'm embarrassed sometimes when I see Christians trying trying to express their faith, but they go to things, you know, they go to rallies and stuff, and they, they use abusive words with angry postures to try to defend their faith to a group of people who don't believe what they believe. And so they make outsiders feel unloved, unwelcome, and condemned. And then sometimes I see self-described Christians posting inflammatory things on social media, and I just want to go, dude, what Bible are you reading? So if you are new to church and new to Christianity, uh, one, I want you to know you're welcome here. And I do apologize for any Christians who may have given you a a reason to think negatively about Christianity and the movement Jesus began called the church. And I hope you will give us a chance to show you that city church is not that way and that that's not what Jesus intended from his movement called the church because Jesus started a messy church for messy people with messy lives so they could experience messy grace. And that's, that's why this is a messy church. And so I want you to know at City Church, when we gather, you don't have to put on a fake smile and act like everything's neat in your life. Because let's be honest, we all have some messiness in our lives. So guess what? You're in a room with a bunch of other messy people too. There are no outsiders here. And you can get real about whatever messiness you may have in your life when we gather. You can get real about your messy marriage, You can get real about your messy finances. You can get real about your struggles with sexual purity and pornography. You can get real about the abuse that you have suffered. You can get real about your anger. You can get real about your depression. You can get real about your addictions. I mean, shoot. We have pastors who have been addicts. We have pastors who have committed crimes. We have pastors who even dealt drugs. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I've been honest with you over the years about my serious struggles with anger that hurt many people who were close to me. So yes, your pastor is a messy pastor. And when Jesus began the movement he called the church, he began a messy church. And so Jesus first called his movement the church right after one of his followers expressed his faith, his name was Peter, He he was the first one to out loud express his faith that Jesus is the son of the living God. And when Peter declared his faith in Jesus, Jesus responded by making this promise recorded in Matthew 16, 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That was the first time that we know that Jesus ever used that word church. And that word translated church in in our Bibles literally means called out ones because Jesus was calling out people to join this movement. And, And if you look up that word church all throughout the New Testament, it never refers to a building or a place. It always refers to a people. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, he wasn't talking about building buildings. He was talking about building us. We are the called out ones. You see, the church is a people, not a place. The church is a body, not a building. The church is a movement, not a meeting. And Jesus is calling us out as a people to be united as a body, a called out body, to be sent as a called out movement to serve our messy world. And let's make sure we understand, we're not serving our messy world because we're all neat and we got it all together, and man, those people are such a mess out there. We are just messy people who have experienced messy grace, and we just want to offer that to other people too. Now, for us as a church movement to represent, because that's what we're doing as a movement, we're representing Jesus on the earth. I believe we have to take on the characteristics that defined who Jesus is. And so according to the scriptures, when the Son of God became flesh, when he became one of us, he expressed two key characteristics. This is John chapter 1, verse 14. The scripture says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. He came full of grace and truth. He didn't have half uh, like half filled with grace and half truth, and I think that's important. He was full of grace and full of truth. Grace means encountering unmerited favor, like experiencing forgiveness from God without ever earning it. Grace means getting what you don't deserve, and it's a good thing. And then truth, truth means a reality that is firm and binding. Truth occurs when you identify what is real, what is is true, what is right, and what is wrong. And when Jesus came, he came full of grace and full of truth. But let's be honest. Churches sometimes struggle to be full of grace and truth because there's a tension in there. I mean, grace feels like one kind of uh, characteristic, and then truth feels like almost this polar opposite characteristic, right? So there's a tension. And so here's what happens many churches choose one or the other. They just almost give up, like, you know, I don't think we can be full of grace and be full of truth, so let's just pick one and we'll go with it. And so then there's some truth only churches. And truth only churches use truth like a hammer to indem- intimidate and pound people into doing the right thing, right? And truth only churches they set themselves in opposition to the culture and to the people in it like we have to defend our faith against all of those people out there who don't believe what we believe and truth only churches then create this antagonism between them and the people we're here to serve and reach and then there's grace only churches cuz you know Jesus didn't intend truth only churches that's that's not what he intended from his movement then there's then there's people who choose the other side. They choose the grace-only side. And grace-only churches view truth as all of those rules that just spoil our fun. And so grace-only churches stand for very little. Grace-only churches, they just, they just want everybody to feel nice and neat. But here's the problem. In grace-only churches, you never get at those inner issues that sabotage your ability to thrive in life. Let me explain what I mean by that. This is Jesus' teaching. This is John chapter eight, verse 31 and 32. Jesus said this, and and this is why truth is so important. Jesus said to people who had believed in him, if you hold to my teachings, you will truly be my disciples. And get this, and you will know what? The truth, and the truth will set you free. According to Jesus, you have to know the truth. And and his teachings are the truth. And when you know the truth, that is what sets you free. And the problem with grace-only churches who don't want to mess with the truth, because that makes people, that's a downer, man. The problem is it leaves people bound up to various aspects of their sinful nature. So they never experience the life that is truly life. They never get free. Grace-only churches never set you free. And that's not what Jesus intended. Grace means you can come to Jesus as you are before you get your act together. Truth means Jesus will help you get free so you can get your act together. So how do we exist as a church full of grace and full of truth? Well, I want us to look at one scene in Jesus' ministry where I believe he was creating the kind of culture he wanted in his movement. He wanted a grace culture, but a grace culture in which he and we can speak the truth. And so this is uh, recorded as Jesus meets a woman. This is in uh, Luke 7, and this, this describes a scene where he meets a woman who had a really messy life. This is Luke 7, starting in verse 36. <clears throat> One of the Pharisees, and if you're not familiar with Pharisees, Pharisees were religious leaders in Jesus' day and his culture. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Okay. So this religious leader, what kind of religious uh, movement do you think he was leading? A grace-only movement or a truth-only movement? That's right. He was a truth-only guy. And he knew this woman's past, and he wanted someone, either Jesus or him, to bring out the truth hammer to pound this woman, to shame her publicly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. Think of what is happening here. Okay. This woman, who even the scriptures uh, describe as having an immoral past, comes to a religious leader's home in brokenness. She's weeping. She's clearly burdened. She clearly is burdened by the messy choices she has made in her life. And I suspect that she probably has already beaten herself up for most of her life because of the decisions and the choices that she has made. She didn't need someone to pull out the hammer of truth and pound on her. What she needed to experience was compassion and empathy and grace. But instead of acknowledging her brokenness, her repentance, and helping her experience forgiveness, this religious leader wanted to pound her with the hammer of truth. And that is not the kind of culture Jesus intended to create for his movement. And too many churches view outsiders the same way that Pharisee viewed that woman. They view themselves as righteous and neat and the defenders of neatness. And so they walk around with their hammer of truth pounding on messy people. And what does that do? If, you, if your life's already messy and you know it and someone pounds you with a hammer of truth, what does that do to you? It makes you not want to be around those people. And that is what happens. And that's why Jesus did not want that kind of culture in his movement. And so he could see what was going on. He could, he could read that religious leader's mind and he could read his facial expressions. He could see the disgust. And so Jesus decided to confront him and in doing so to create the kind of culture he wanted, one filled with grace, but also that spoke the truth. And so he did this by telling a story. He told the story about two people who owed a debt to a money lender. One person owed about $1,000 like in today's terms. The other person owed $100,000. Well, both of their debts became due and neither one of them could pay for it. And so the lender chose to forgive both of them of their debts. What an amazing act. And Jesus tells this story to picture sin as being like a debt. And what Jesus suggests in this story is that everybody has a sin debt. Let's just be honest. Some of us have a bigger sin debt, right? And some of us, our sin debt may be pretty small. But we all have a sin debt. And the point of the story is, no matter how big or how small your sin debt is, none of us can pay it off on our own. We all depend upon the grace of the money lender to pay off our debt. So the truth, the truth admits I have a sin debt. Grace opens up the way for me to ask for forgiveness instead of trying to pay it off myself. And after Jesus told this story, he asked the religious leader, Which debtor would love the the lender for forgiving their debt the most? Which one? And so this is uh, what happens in the story. This is uh, verse 43. Simon, and that's the name of the Pharisee, Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And notice what happens. He turns from looking at Simon, and now he's looking at the woman. Remember, she's still at his feet. So you get this. What he's getting ready to say, he's saying... He's saying it to Simon, but he's saying while looking at the woman. Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. And Jesus' point in this conversation is that when you're forgiven a lot, you tend to love a lot. When you're shown a lot of grace, you tend to give a lot of grace. And that's the kind of culture Jesus wants in his movement. He wants people who have humbled themselves before the truth that we all have a sin dead. And he wants people who have received grace, an abundance of grace, to create a culture of truth and grace for others so others can experience that messy grace now at this point jesus wanted to clarify it's like he wanted to make sure that these religious leaders all knew what had just happened to that woman and so he continued this is uh, verse 48 <clears throat> then jesus said to the woman remember he's looking at her your sins are forgiven the men at the table said among themselves ha who is this man that goes around forgiving sins and jesus said to the woman your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus forgave that woman of her many sins. Why? What did Jesus say? Why did he forgive her sins? It was because of her faith. Her faith in who Jesus is. She believed that Jesus could forgive her of her sins. She believed Jesus had authority to forgive her. And so the truth led her to to get humbled by the great debt of sin that she had. And grace led her to kneel before the feet of the man who could forgive her of sins. And in that moment, she experienced grace, grace and truth. She got what she didn't deserve, and it was a good thing. She was forgiven. She became a child of God, unrelated to her past, and now she had the hope to have a life filled with peace. But I don't want us to miss a critical factor that attracted her to that setting. Because think about it. This woman likely lived in that town most of her life, maybe her whole life. But she never felt welcome to come to that religious leader's home. Isn't that sad? She never felt attracted to his religious movement. He gave off the wrong vibe. He's a truth-only guy. Nobody comes to truth-only. Nobody wants to. Then why did she come? Why did she come to a house she had avoided all of her life? What made the difference? Jesus was there. And because Jesus was full of grace and truth, she felt welcome to come into his presence. You see, the key was not the place. She had avoided the place all of her life because of the person in it. What made her attracted was the person of Jesus. It was the people in the place that made the difference. And City Church exists so all people can believe and thrive in Christ. No matter how big their sin debt might be or how small it might be, all people are welcome here. This is a messy church, and you are welcome here. And as long as I'm your pastor, we will continue to be a body full of grace. That means we will welcome all people no matter what they believe or don't believe, no matter what they've done or not done, all people are welcome here. And I hope you feel that. And as long as I'm your pastor, we will uh, be a church movement that is full of truth. We will speak the truth. Now, we will speak the truth with love. We will, be, you know, we will do our best not to hammer you with the truth or to shame you with the truth, but we will speak the truth because if we don't tell you the truth, you'll never get free. And it's in freedom that you get to experience the abundant life that God offers you. Full of grace, full of truth. And, and like I said earlier, that creates a tension. And that's why a lot of churches struggle. Because most churches want to be either full grace or full truth. And it's the tension between full grace and full truth that makes this a messy church. And that's what Jesus intended. And that is why City Church is a messy church. And so if you call City Church your church, I'm asking you to continue helping us to create a culture filled with grace and filled with truth. I'm asking you to be the person in the place that makes the difference because Jesus entrusted this movement to us. So now we're the people in the place that ought to make the difference. I'm asking you to be Jesus to all people. You are his hands, you are his feet, you are his mouth. Be Jesus to all people. Show them full grace and full truth. And I also want you to think about someone you know who may feel like an outsider, maybe even feel like that woman. This may be a person in your family, someone that you work with, and maybe this person has a huge sin debt. I want you to begin to pray for this person and to invite that person to this messy church because I believe if you can get them here, I believe they will experience Jesus here. Now this past year, a man who attends City Church came up to one of our pastors and he was real excited and he said, oh, pastor, pastor, I just have to tell you what happened to my brother. And so this is his story. He said, my brother got addicted to drugs and made some big mistakes. He had a huge sin debt. And those mistakes landed him in prison for a long time. While he was in prison, his heart began to soften when one of our siblings died. This last week, my brother finally got out of prison, and I invited him to go to church with me. And when he heard the pastor's message about Jesus, he knew Jesus is what he needed. And that week, and people were getting baptized on stage. So he jumped up and decided to get baptized that day. I can't tell you how incredible this is. If you only knew the man he was before, this is a great day. And when I heard that story, I was so excited for that ex-con that he came to this place and experienced the person of Jesus and his grace. And he... He got the hope that he could have a new life no matter what happened in his past, that he could have a new life. And you know what else? I was so grateful because of you. You created this culture where that man knew he could bring his brother who had just gotten out of prison that week. He knew he could bring his brother here and you would love him and you would welcome him as he was where he was. And that's what it means to have a messy church. And I'm proud of you for that. I ask you to help me protect this movement because City Church is not about buildings. We're a people, not a place. We are a body, not a building. We are a movement, not a meeting. We are messy people with messy lives who have experienced messy grace. And we will do our best to create the kind of grace and truth culture that will help people believe in Christ and set them free so they can thrive in life. But maybe you're here today and you feel like that ex-con brother. You're longing for a new life. Or maybe you feel like that woman. You're broken and you're humbled because of your messy past. I want you to know that Jesus is the son of God. He has authority to forgive your sins. And he will forgive you today if you will put your trust in him. Let's pray together. And if you're ready to put your trust in Jesus Christ today, I'm going to lead you through a prayer. And I I encourage you to just whisper this out loud and let this be the expression of your faith in Jesus. You ready? God, I believe in you. And I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe he has authority to forgive my sins. And God, I have, a, I have a sin debt. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sin debt. Because I believe in Jesus. Jesus. Thank, you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And Lord God, I ask you to do what you promised. You promised if we would put our trust in your Son as the one who has authority to forgive our sins. You promised that you would forgive our sins, all of our sins, no matter how big our sin debt. And I pray that right now people would feel that. Those who prayed that prayer would feel that, the release from the burden of guilt, the release from the heaviness of their sin debt. Wash away all stains. Fill them up with your spirit and confirm within their hearts that from this day forward they are your children. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.